Welcome to season three of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In this, our third season, we turn our attention to the world of politics. Our guest today is a candidate for the President of the United States. John Delaney is an attorney, businessman, and politician. He was the U.S. Representative for Maryland's 6th Congressional District from 2013 to 2019. Prior to that, he founded two companies that went public on the New York Stock Exchange, including a company that specialized in making loans to smaller-sized healthcare providers. During the first Democratic presidential debate, John distinguished himself as the only 2020 candidate with experience in the business of healthcare. Welcome, John. We're thrilled to have you on our podcast. The show's format is simple. They'll have 10 minutes to present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. After that, I'll post questions to you based on my experience as a physician and healthcare CEO. Then Jeremy will dive in from the patient's perspective, ensuring that you've addressed the concerns of American voters. With that, John, let's turn it over to you. We can't wait to hear your plan. Okay, well, I think when we, um, when I think about healthcare, and I think when everyone thinks about healthcare, I think we have to think of three things, and that is access, quality, and cost, because healthcare is really all of those things. And when we think about reforming our healthcare system, which I do believe is broken, our goal should be to create a system of universal access so that everyone has access to healthcare. A system that gets costs under control because healthcare costs are the number one driver of the long-term fiscal health of our nation. And thirdly, uh, reforming the system so that we have fewer disparities in quality. And so when I think about healthcare reform, I think of it through those three goals. What I would do initially as president in my first 100 days is what I call fix the Affordable Care Act, because I think the Affordable Care Act was a very uh, important step forward. And it was a good law, but there are some things that need to be fixed. Principally, uh, a mechanism needs to be created to take some of the higher-risk patients out of the various exchanges uh, that have been established or could be established around the country, because some of these patients uh, really do skew the economics of exchanges, particularly if they're small and they lead to uh, distortions in pricing, uh, and they really affect the viability of the exchanges. And that's really one of the unfortunate uh, things that happened with the Affordable Care Act, is that we didn't create a, a mechanism for patients that, that are particularly uh, uh, sick and in need of very expensive health care, or to some extent, uh, individuals who are over 55, but under 65 and not yet eligible for Medicare. 
those individuals really threw off the economics of a lot of these exchanges. And there's some really good bipartisan ways of fixing uh, the Affordable Care Act, strengthening it so that it would work better. That's what I'd want to do in my first 100 days. The second thing I would try to do in my first 100 days is put in place a public option, which I think would uh, significantly improve uh, the American people's ability to get health care. I would likely model the public option around um, something that uses the Medicare provider network, which I think is the most trusted provider network in the country, and creating a low-cost, very efficient public option that everyone would have the opportunity to buy into, I think would significantly improve healthcare in this country. But then thirdly, I'd want to work towards a form of universal healthcare, because I think healthcare is a basic human right, and I also think it's smart economic policy. I think if every American had a basic health care package uh, as part of citizenship, they would be able to be more economically mobile, either as entrepreneurs or just in pursuing economic opportunities, because unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans are shackled to their job because it's the way they get their health care. The way I would create a universal health care system is along the lines of the proposal I've rolled out, which is called Better Care. And under Better Care, we leave Medicare alone because it works. And while it's not perfect, it's probably the best part of our healthcare system. So I wouldn't make any changes to Medicare. But what I would do is I would create a new program that everyone gets from when they're born to their 65, and then when they're over 65, they go into Medicare. I would uh, roll Medicaid into this new federal program because Medicaid is really a broken program around this country, and you see it in a lot of different states. But the way the new federal health care plan would work under better care is even though you get a basic government health care package as a right, you don't have to take it if you don't want to. So I would give the American people choice. And the way that would work is everyone would get their basic health care. They could take it or not. If they decide not to take it, they would get a credit from the government because they're effectively not using a benefit that's available to them. And they could use that credit to, to purchase private health insurance either directly or they could give it to their employer uh, to help cover the employer-sponsored plan they may provide, or they could give it to their labor union to help cover the cost of the uh, health care that the labor union provides. And that would lead to a kind of a mixed model where everyone had a basic kind of backbone federal health care plan. And then what would float on top of that is a combination of supplementals or a private market where people would opt out of the federal system and buy their own health insurance. That's somewhat similar to what Germany and France uh, offer, and I think that's the best way to create universal healthcare. So that's how I think about it. Those are the three phases uh, in terms of how to reform healthcare. I'd fix the ACA right away. I'd try to get a public option done right away, and then I'd try to lead us towards a point where we actually have a universal healthcare system. And I think those efforts would create a healthcare system that is uh, not only has better access but improved quality and lower cost. So that's my overview of how I think about healthcare. Let me ask you, John, a first question, which is how did you become so knowledgeable and interested in healthcare? Well, you know, as you referenced, my first business uh, was focused on healthcare. Actually, my first two businesses. So my background is I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was like Chris. After college and law school, I became an entrepreneur. And my first business uh, with two uh, partners was a was a home health care business um, where we provided health care uh, into people's homes, uh, fairly traditional home care services. But this was in the uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was, it was somewhat of a new service at the time. And then um, 
uh, and then I started a business that focused on financing small to mid-sized healthcare companies, kind of the kind of very similar to the, the companies that I ran, this health, this home care company, which we, we ultimately sold. And that second company of mine was called Healthcare Financial Partners. And what it did is it focused on financing small to mid-sized healthcare companies all over the country. And, you know, things like rural hospitals, um, long-term care providers, home health care, large physician practices, diagnostic companies. And during the time I ran the business, uh, we made loans to a thousand healthcare companies all around the country. So I spent a lot of time traveling around the United States, sitting down and, you know, with uh, administrators of healthcare businesses and, you know, trying to understand their business models so I could help uh, help them, you know, finance their growth. So that gave me a lot of insight to how the healthcare business works. I think I'd be the only president, um, uh, whoever has any experience in the healthcare business, which is maybe one of the reasons why we've had such a broken healthcare system historically. Let me ask you specific to two of the planks you've discussed, the public option and the basic uh, coverage plan. How would you price them and how would you determine how much coverage to provide through them? Well, in terms of the universal healthcare plan, let me answer your second question first. I would model the benefit package around the, the minimum uh, benefits uh, that are part of the Affordable Care Act. So that would be, uh, you know, the minimum set of benefits that, that I would offer. I think as it relates to a public option, I think you could offer a variety of options. From a pricing perspective, the, what a public option really is, is a government nonprofit uh, that is functionally an insurance company, but it's national in its, in its scale. It has a built-in provider network to start, which is the Medicare provider network. And um, it could offer a variety of plans, uh, which would probably be slightly different depending upon your age and things like that. I would price them so that the government plan, again, which would have a very low-cost operating platform and would be able to spread risk across the large population because it would be a national plan. I would price it so that the, the nonprofit government insurance uh, company would basically break even. Why would you not just use the current exchanges and have the government have to compete against the current plans that exist? Well, I think it, they would compete, right? Because a public option is effectively a government uh, launched insurance company. So it would effectively compete with the exchanges, I think. I guess what I'm getting at, and I'm a physician, is that quite a number of doctors really feel they have no choice but to participate in Medicare, which is why the choice of doctors is so broad. But if they didn't find themselves having to do that, they very might, likely might decide to not take Medicare patients. As today, they don't take Medicaid patients. Yeah. And again, you know, th this is the part of the, the healthcare reform conversation that, that, that I think I'm the only one who's really comfortable or probably has enough courage or maybe enough stupidity to engage in, which is uh, reimbursement rates. Because like, I think the reason you're saying a lot of physicians don't take Medicare is because, or don't want to take Medicare, but they feel like they have to, is because the reimbursement rates aren't what they can get from other payers. Um. And, you know, that's the fundamental problem with the single payer proposal that a lot of uh, politicians put forth, which is, as I said, we have no 
evidence to suggest that the government ever pays the cost of health care. And I think Medicare is a great example of that because Medicare only covers about 90 percent of health care costs. Medicaid, I think, covers 80 percent and commercial insurance pays 120 percent. So I'd like to get Medicare rates up to more uh, approximate the cost of health care because I think that would create a, a healthier healthcare marketplace. But the problem is we have a lot of cost constraints, obviously. And I want to applaud your courage in the first presidential debate when you were the only candidate to take on the question of the cost and what it uh, pays and the implications that it would have for patients, because that should be, from my perspective, like yours, central to the debate going forward as we figure out how to provide universal coverage and, as you say, a, a right of all Americans. Yeah, because if people think of commercial insurance in a, in a kind of a skewed way, which is I'm not a big fan of commercial insurance companies. Of course, I don't think anyone really is. But commercial insurance companies play a, play a role, and the role they play is they're they're an organized mechanism for the American people to invest in the healthcare system to some extent. I mean, that's what they really do. They provide a way for you to get coverage, but by doing that, they actually provide very important reimbursement levels to the healthcare system that allow for the healthcare system, in my opinion, to have pretty high quality and to continue to innovate and invest and build new facilities and these kind of things. Um, so, you know, they're, they're kind of a, uh, an, you know, a, a necessary evil for lack of a better term because no one really likes health insurance companies, but they play a role and it's in addition to just insuring people, but they create a way for people to effectively invest in the healthcare system. Because, you know, the American people are really investing in making sure the healthcare system is as good as it is today. And they do that largely through commercial insurance, which they either pay for or they get from their company. But in a way, they're paying for that because they're not getting higher wages as a result. Uh, and, you know, that's that's something that people, I think, naively think you can just get rid of and have the government step in. And, and I, I always tell them to just go to any rural hospital in this country. Ask them how it would be if uh, in the prior year all their bills were paid at the Medicare rate. Pretty much everyone I've ever walked into told me they would close. Well, Medicare, as you say, reimburses at 90%, and the margins for the average hospital in the United States is under 5%. So anyone yeah. who's only making 5% with a 10% revenue cut, clearly, as you would pointed out very clearly, would be out of business very quickly. Yeah, in hospitals, it's, it's even more profound because, you know, your average hospital admission for the same, um, you know, uh, reason is paid at about twice the rate of Medicare from commercial insurance. So it's really about 200% uh, of Medicare rates is what hospitals receive. And so Bernie Sanders made that point in the second debate. He says, well, you know, the hospitals have a lot of bad debt. And if you had Medicare for all, then all that uncompensated care would, would get paid. And he's right about that. And that would add revenues to hospitals. There's no question about it. But if you look at the 30 to 40% of their business that's commercial insurance and you were to cut that in half, the additional revenues from uncompensated care would not cover the lost revenues from everyone getting paid at Medicare. Absolutely. Let me ask you as a presidential candidate, why has the delivery system not really been discussed except peripherally? Because ultimately, any insurance plan has to reflect the cost of delivering care. And right now, as we know, the United States system is relatively inefficient. 30% of what uh, doctors do has been shown to be unnecessary and sometimes even harmful. And yet 
I have outside of the drug uh, industry, I've not heard people talk about the uh, inefficiencies of hospitals or some of the problems with uh, physician specialists. Yeah, no, it's funny. I was with someone uh, the other night who's a researcher in uh, anesthesiology, and she's doing a lot of work around uh, just errors uh, that are made in, in, uh, during surgery. You know, human errors, you know, not made for malice, just, you know, basic human errors that are made in, uh, during uh, surgical procedures and the effect it has not only in terms of hurting patients, but the effect it has on cost. That, and it was really staggering when you listen to the numbers. The fact that we haven't had more innovation and used more, using more technology to try to eliminate some of these human errors. I think the reason is, you know, and this is what no one likes to talk about. I mean, and, and Trump made this kind of uh, kind of dumb statement at one point, but he was kind of right when he said healthcare is complicated. And it's such an incredibly complicated system. I mean, it's almost a fifth of our economy. And it's really kind of thousands of systems layered upon themselves that um, the delivery system is really hard to reform and unpack. And, you know, there's there's just a lot of inefficiencies in it. There's a lot of inefficiencies from a kind of a documentation and paperwork perspective. There's a lot of inefficiencies in terms of the things that people think they're doing to save money in you know, a situation where it's very hard in this country to tell people that certain procedures really aren't, uh, when you when you think about the likelihood of their, them being successful and the costs associated with them, we, we don't have a society where we can make kind of rational decisions, particularly towards the end of people's lives. We have a lot of litigation expenses. Um, you know, we have a very... Um, you know, unworkable system. So the only way to fix that is it's, it's very hard for politicians to go in and rewire the healthcare system. But what we can try to do is create incentives for people to change their behavior. Um, and I think there's things we can do. I mean, you know, more people should be using hospice at the end of their life. A lot of data to suggest that it not only makes your life better, but in many ways it extends your life. Of courses of treatment you might try at the end of your life to, to keep your, your family member alive. Do we have enough incentives uh, for people to do that? Are we supporting the hospice industry enough so that they can actually be out there telling their story? I mean, it's a simple example, but uh, it's one until you've had a firsthand experience with it, you don't realize how incredibly impactful it can be. And also save us an enormous amount of money, by the way. So there's just stuff like that. I mean, we don't do enough around prevention. We don't do enough about encouraging people to live healthy lifestyles. I mean, the list is so incredibly long. I agree. I love your drug plan. Can you tell our listeners some of the details that you've written about in your various uh, white papers? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, there's two issues with pharmaceutical prices in this country, which are really out of control. There's the easy issue that all the Democrats running for president talk about, which is that the government should negotiate Medicare rates, which of course we should. You know, the government can use its purchasing power to negotiate rates for VA drugs, and they're much lower than Medicare rates, so clearly we should do that. But the, the, the deeper problem in many ways, and the problem that's a little harder to get your head around, is the fact that the U.S. is really subsidizing the whole industry. And what I mean by that is, if, if you break the, the world down into two types of countries, poor countries and wealthy countries, I think we all agree that poor countries ought to be able to buy drugs really inexpensively because if, if we don't provide them drugs at a low cost, they won't have access to them. 
And, you know, just as a, from a humanitarian perspective, we, we need to do that. But I think we should also all agree that the wealthy countries should largely pay about the same for their drugs. And, and what I mean by that is folks in Germany should pay the same as U.S. citizens for their drugs. And that's not what's happening. Folks in Germany may be paying a third of what we're paying. And the reason for that is they have one person who negotiates the prices no matter where you buy the drugs. And in many ways, those people negotiate the prices down below cost. And to some extent, the pharmaceutical companies don't even care that much because they can just keep raising the prices here. So in reality, the entire profit of the pharmaceutical industry is made in the United States of America. And that's just not fair. And so what I've proposed is mechanisms to actually create market incentives for that to change, including effectively taxing uh, pharmaceutical companies a tax on the difference of where they sell drugs in the G20 and where they sell them here so that we create an incentive for them to lower prices here and you know, probably have to raise prices uh, in other countries so that there's no difference between where they sell the drugs here and overseas. I concur with you. I wrote a book called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, and While Usually Wrong. It's a Washington Post bestseller. And in it, I talked about the legacy players like the drug industry, like the hospital association. And I made the point of how much power they have. You've had experience in Congress. What's the likelihood that significant legislation, the kind you're talking about, imposing a pretty significant tax on the drug industry, could get through Congress and signed, well, signed by you, the president, but get through Congress to get to your desk? Well, I think the, the, uh, the biggest opportunity is with pharmaceutical pricing, because that's where the American people are just like out of control, mad. You know, the, 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 I would describe the American people's attitudes towards the pharmaceutical companies as they're really close to grabbing their pitchforks. Um, I think, the, you know, other issues with the hospitals, it's, it's much more complicated, right? It's not so direct and in their face. I mean, you know, even my wife, she carries around one of those EpiPens, and it's gone up 10 times in price since 2000. And you're a physician, I'm not. Uh, you know, and you can probably give me a much better of analysis of what's in an EpiPen, but I suspect not a damn thing has changed about an EpiPen in the last 20 years. Yet the price of it is up tenfold. Um, so it's stuff like that that's just outrageous. Yeah, what's actually interesting about the EpiPen is that with the product in it actually can't be protected. It's the delivery system, and that system was actually developed by the U.S. government uh, through the NIH. And so it's a, yeah, we I developed mean, so our own you would tell me, has anything really changed? About Nothing. No. Nothing. No. It's, it's all about it's all about. But it's patents. gone up tenfold. So I mean, like it's stuff like that that just like everyone's got these stories. Yep. And so it's just outrageous. Your book, The Right Answer, How Can We Do Reunite a Divided Nation, focuses on bipartisanship. Again, I want to ask you about what's going on in the world of politics, particularly within the congressional level. Is bipartisanship possible in your view? I think it is. You know, I think the best way to get bipartisanship is to give each side a win. And, uh, you know what I mean by that? A lot of things that Democrats are fighting for that are good ideas. There's a lot of things that Republicans are fighting for that are good ideas. And quite frankly, there's things Democrats are fighting for that are bad ideas. And there's things Republicans are fighting for are bad ideas. And the, what we really need to be doing is figuring out the things Democrats want that are good ideas, the things that Republicans want that are good ideas, and pairing them up. 
you can give members of Congress a, a reason to go back to their district and tell them the thing they did that's good, uh, you create the opportunity for a political deal. And that's, you know, like, I, you know, the, 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 switching from healthcare for a second, like trade, we really should be entering into trade agreements like Obama was trying to do with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But the problem is a lot of communities have been left behind by trade. And so there's a lot of multiplication of trade agreements, even if they're good agreements. So the best way to get a trade agreement done is to pair it with an infrastructure program. Because if you go to the American people and talk about how you're building infrastructure, they're much more tolerant of you entering into trade agreements. You know, they feel like you're not forgetting about them. Next question I have for you, John, is I read this week that the employment in the healthcare sector continues to go up. Medicine is more than half people. It seems to me that if we're really going to rein in costs uh, through greater efficiency, not just by price control, if we're going to rein it in through greater efficiency, we're going to have to deliver the same or more care, higher quality with fewer people. And yet every time something is done that might lead to that, as an example, closure of hospitals, consolidation of volume for, for better outcomes, the communities get up in arms and it's almost impossible to accomplish. How are we going to make the move towards a system that is more efficient, given that someone is bound to lose with every change that happens? Yeah, and this is, this is the hard thing about healthcare in many ways, which is that, um, and I'm not an economist by training, Although I could, you know, I give you the arguments they make, but 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 healthcare is a huge percentage of our national spending, and it's growing at a fast rate. But it employs a lot of people, and so it talks about controlling healthcare costs, but that always correlates at some level into fewer people working. And um, that's a, uh, you know, it, it makes you often think. Uh, be of two minds about the healthcare industry, right? I mean, it's sure the costs are growing, but it's also employing a lot. You know, what's really the 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 right thing to do? I mean, I generally believe it's always good to try to be efficient. You know, that's the best way to to be in a free market economy and to encourage as much efficiency. A lot of inefficiencies in our healthcare system, but as you know, people really value having uh, healthcare around them. And you know, rural America, this is a real problem. I mean. What's happened to rural America? I don't know how. Where are you located, by the way? Uh, I'm actually located both on the east and west coasts. So, but not in the middle where r rural America is. No. So you, you don't spend a lot of time in rural America. You, you travel rural America like I do all the time. You see, town after town has shrunk, and town after town has gotten older. There aren't a lot of young people uh, because there aren't a lot of jobs. And so, uh, what that creates is a is a very very bad dynamic for the healthcare system. Because going back to what we said before, which is, you know, let's say your average hospital is a third commercial insurance, a third Medicaid, a third Medicare, and it's that mix that allows it to stay open. Well, what's happened to rural hospitals, it's no longer a third, a third, a third. It's like 15% commercial insurance and, uh, you know, 85% Medicare and Medicaid. And that puts a huge strain on, on the operating uh, dynamics of the hospital, as you can imagine. And it's caused a lot of rural hospitals to close. And uh, you go to rural communities, and people have to often travel a great distance to get access to, to health care. And it's a huge problem. And people are really upset about it, which is your point about you know hospital consolidation. I mean, some hospital consolidation is positive, but hospital closures because of the demographics in a community, and it puts people in a position where they have to travel great distances to get health care is a real problem for the 
Now, I tend to think we got to be more creative about telemedicine. We got to be more creative about ways of getting flexible, high quality healthcare delivered into these communities. But it wouldn't solve the jobs issue that you raised, and the communities are going to have difficulty seeing those jobs elsewhere, even if the care is going to be available to its citizens. I read a fascinating study or survey that 70% of citizens in the United States today had great difficulty with the out-of-pocket payments. And we know that's true. It's leading cause of bankruptcy and uh, half of the people could not afford to make their full deductibles if they got very sick without borrowing money. But in the same survey, 70% of people said they wanted more health care than they were receiving today. What's going on with the American uh, individual? Uh, do they understand what's really happening? And I'll say most significantly, what should be the role of the patient in improving quality and lowering cost? Well, you know, ultimately the only way out of our healthcare situation is to have a more empowered patient. And our healthcare system is really taking the patient out of it. I mean, there are very few rewards for patients to be healthier in our healthcare system right now because the bulk of healthcare that they receive is paid for by someone else. And even though they have, they have in some ways, crushing co-payments and out-of-pockets, they don't see how those things go up or down based on how healthy they are. A situation where the consumer is really disconnected from the cost of healthcare. And they don't shop for healthcare the way they shop for other things. Uh, and so there hasn't been the ability to rein in costs that I think uh, that, that, that we really need to do. You know, it's no secret the lobbying power that, uh, that is in, in Washington, that the, uh, that the healthcare industry has in Washington. And I think a lot of that makes the average voter or makes the average person think that when it comes to healthcare, the government really doesn't have the best interests of the patients in mind. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I think, I think the example of where that happens is the, is the pharmaceutical industry. But I, I, I think that, I think it's also a, um, a too simplistic um, way of thinking about healthcare generally. Right. A lot of things has happened in healthcare in this country, right? Uh, you know, some good, some bad, and often the good and the bad are interrelated. I mean, we could have 1950s cost healthcare, but we'd have 1950s quality. Right. So, so there's clearly been a massive increase in the cost of healthcare, but it's come with a lot of amazing innovation uh, that, you know, allow people to live with, you know, diseases that used to be terminal or now chronic, kids that are, were born with situations where they really didn't have any hope of living now they can live full healthy lives and all these kind of things uh, are remarkable but they come with a huge cost and uh, you know so i think people tend to say oh all that cost stuff is just because you know corrupt healthcare lobbyists but that's the big oversimplification um i think in the pharmaceutical industry we have a pretty stark example of why there's too much money in politics because the pharmaceutical industry has basically bought members of Congress off and, and the government doesn't do what it should do, which is negotiate drug prices. But I think in other industries, um, it's, you know, physicians or hospitals or long-term care providers or any of those. I think it's, it's much more complicated than just saying it's, you know, corruption in Washington. 
And, and, and I know, and I agree with you on that. And I, I think one of the issues though, is I think a lot of people, uh, you know, even with the Affordable Care Act and, and promises made on both the right and the left that deductibles keep rising, out-of-pocket costs keep rising, premiums keep rising. And I think, you know, the lower middle-class families are the ones that feel, you know, yes, there's all this innovation in healthcare, but it's not realistically affordable to them. Yeah. Yeah, again, I think, uh, you know, again, some of that is true and some of it's not. It, costs have clearly gone up a lot. But the question is, you know, what's the reason for that and, and what do we do to get them under control? Um, and, you know, again, some of it is, is, again, you know, people talk all so much about money in politics. And, and trust me, no one has seen it more firsthand than I have, whether it's on gun safety or on pharmaceutical prices, you see an example where an industry has bought members of Congress and effectively has bought their vote so they don't do what's good for the American people. But on other issues, you know, for example, on immigration reform, which had incredible support from all the big businesses in this country, and every major business group in the United States of America was lobbying hard for immigration reform. It didn't get done for other reasons, right? There's an assault on, on women's reproductive freedom, uh, in my opinion, going on around this country. That has nothing to do with money and politics. So there's things going on in our political system that are deeper than just problems with money and politics. And you know, I think it's always important to make that point. There's a lot of things happening in this country around divisiveness and, and general dysfunction in government. I think healthcare is an example of it. Some of it is because of too much money in lobbyists' hands, but some of it is just like the healthcare system has changed a lot and we haven't done reforms. And some of the reasons we haven't done reforms is because people are just a bunch of raging ideologues and they walk around with these ridiculous positions that are not, you know, uh, rooted in reality and it prevents a situation that you can't even do common sense reforms. I mean, look at the Affordable Care Act. You got every Democrat saying it's perfect and every Republican saying it's the worst thing that ever happened. Well, in truth, it was a really good law, but it had some deep flaws in it. You know, and one of the flaws was what they did with, uh, you know, if you, if you think about how the Affordable Care Act was structured, had a provision in the Affordable Care Act that said if you're over 55 but under 65 and you're in an exchange, that the insurance company can only charge you three times the cost of the cheapest plan. I'm 56 years old. If I were to go into an exchange, by law, that exchange could only charge me three times what it costs or what it charges, say, a 21-year-old healthy young man. Well, from an actuarial perspective, my costs are six times that person's costs. As the law says that the insurance companies can only charge us three times then what the insurance companies have to do is effectively make up for losing money on all the people over 55 but under 65. And the way they did that is by charging high premiums to the younger people. And the very young people who think they're invincible basically said, well, I don't want to get this insurance. It's too expensive. I'm just going to pay the fee. They opted out of the exchanges. And that left a lot of people in these exchanges who were in their 30s and 40s and families and had no choice but to be in the exchanges. And their costs went through the roof. Now, why was that provision put in for the over 55? It was put in because the ARP starts 
starts representing people at 55, not at 65. And they had a very big hand in the crafting of the Affordable Care Act. And they put that provision in there. And so there's an example of a provision that really hurt the Affordable Care Act that has nothing to do with traditional big money in politics. It has to do with a terrific group that has worked as a fabulous advocate for seniors for a long time. See what I mean? So these things are often a little more complicated than they seem. I, I really liked how you talked about rural health. You know, Robbie, you know, as he mentioned, lives on both coasts. But for me, I actually live in Iowa. I grew up in rural Iowa. Oh, wow. I, I'm in Iowa right now. Um, where where are you? I, Iowa City. Oh, cool. But can you talk a little bit about something that I think a lot of the country doesn't realize is that a lot of these rural areas, there's no local gym. There's there's no access to Nothing. healthy food. Even I mean, people just assume farmers are going to be eating fresh food all day, but that's not the case. There's not a lot of access to healthy food. Can you talk about how you would help rural health, especially when it comes to preventative care and, and even expanding that access piece? Well, the most broken part of our healthcare system is Medicaid. It's just a terribly broken system. And, and obviously in Iowa, you know firsthand. Uh, it's super broken yeah, super broken. I mean, I think what happened with that is just terrible. I mean, it's pretty clear to me what they did, which is they they, uh, they basically brought in a, a private operator uh, who effectively just made a margin to push down prices, uh, basically cut reimbursement for all the providers and made it worse. Uh, the problem with Medicaid is really simple, which is, you know, Medicaid is, is a state-funded program. The federal government contributes to it, but the state puts money in, as you know, and a big part of the money. And healthcare costs have grown at faster than inflation in this country. And the way the government has financed that is by borrowing money and running up deficits. So a re the reason the federal government loses so much money is largely because of healthcare. And it funds those deficits by borrowing money, which the federal government can do. The problem is states, most states have these balanced budget laws. They can't run deficits. So when your tax revenues grow at the rate of inflation and healthcare, which is what your biggest cost, grows at two to three times inflation, and you cannot run deficits, what you have to do is basically just keep cutting reimbursement rates. That's the only way you keep the program going. You know, in the state of New Hampshire, for example, they have a mental health Medicaid benefit. You know what the reimbursement rate is? It's $18 a visit. So my, what I tell people in New Hampshire is you technically have a Medicaid mental health benefit because if you go on the website of New Hampshire Medicaid, it says that there's a mental health benefit, but good luck finding a provider who will take it. They basically don't have a mental health benefit. And the same is true in Iowa in lots of ways, right? I mean, they've cut reimbursement rates to a lot of these providers, and it's really created uh, a situation where it's hard to get people to practice or to build new facilities or to do any of that stuff. And so I think we have a crisis of rural health in this country, and I think it's based on Medicaid because Medicaid's become a much bigger part of rural health because rural health populations are shrinking, aging, and they're getting more poor. And uh, it's just at a crisis level, and, and I think it's got to be at the top of, of uh, healthcare reform is supporting uh, rural health through supporting these Medicaid programs. So if I can jump back in then, John, 
if the federal government, in essence, takes over responsibility for these underfunded state programs, the implication would be that the total dollars expended would rise significantly at the federal level, not at the state level. How do you see our nation funding that added cost? So that's one of the reasons of having a universal system that you can start changing some of the incentives that we talked about earlier. I mean, you, ha- you know, and there were some good things Affordable Care Act, like these penalties for readmissions and stuff like that. That stuff actually works. And I think we just need more of that. But it's really hard to have those things when you don't have a universal system. So that's why I would be in favor of it. Um, but the other thing we've got to do, which we haven't talked at all about, and we should probably touch on briefly, is innovation, right? We have to cure a bunch of these diseases. Cure Alzheimer's, for example. I don't know how we ever control healthcare. And that's why that's one of the things most discouraging, in my opinion, about what's going on right now. Because I think we're at the, I think we're at the threshold of some extraordinary breakthroughs in uh, in basic research in life sciences and and uh, medicine generally, largely powered by computing power and big data, which is allowed scientists and investigators to do work that is transformative that it would have taken years and years and years to do in the past. Now they can do very quickly. And I think we've got to be doubling and tripling down on trying to cure some of these things. Because unless we cure these things, uh, we're never going to get healthcare costs under control. You have this big anti-vaccine movement that on, on both the right and the left that is uh, essentially... What's dangerous. Well, right. and, and I, I'm curious as to this, this health misinformation spreads like wildfire on Facebook and Twitter. And, and at what point do you think it's the government's role to step in and say this goes beyond the boundaries of free speech? It's, I mean, essentially, it's the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded theater. At what point does that become dangerous? And at what point is it the government's role to step in and prevent that? Or should it just continue to be free speech? How would you regulate that? Or, or kind of what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think it's hard to rein in people's opinions on this stuff. I mean, I think the government's role as it relates to vaccines is requiring vaccines. I mean, that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean we should require a vaccine for everything. If certain diseases can be vaccinated against, but they can only be transmitted based on certain behavior that people need. I don't think those should be mandated vaccines. But for diseases that can be, you know, are, are readily transferable and can lead to public health outcomes and your behavior doesn't really change whether you get them or not, then I think the government should require vaccinations. What about like religious exemptions and things like that? You know, I, I'm not in favor of exemptions that lead to public health crises. One of the hottest topics on the you know, in, in politics right now, I would I would say is the discussion of Medicare for all. Is it realistic? How soon is it realistic? How soon would it be realistic? What would your message to voters be about, uh, you know, what is the most realistic and best, or what's the most realistic step forward in terms of improving American healthcare? And is Medicare for all something that can realistically come in and, and essentially wave a magic wand and, and fix things. Yeah, I mean, it, so I, I believe I believe we should have universal health care, meaning every American should have health care coverage as a basic human right, which is why I have, a, I have a plan to do that, which is better care. But I don't think Medicare for all is the best way to achieve it. 
And as I said in the beginning of the show, is I think healthcare is three things: it's access, quality, and cost. And Medicare for all absolutely achieves universal access. It's like my plan, Better Care, does. But it will undoubtedly lead to a reduction uh, in quality, increase in cost, in my opinion. And I think the reduction in quality could get so significant that it actually starts leading to limited access. Uh, and so I don't think there's any chance Medicare for all ever becomes law in this country because it's fundamentally bad healthcare policy. If you reimburse the U.S. healthcare system at Medicare rates, hospitals all over this country would close. And that's never going to happen politically. And I also think this notion that um, we're going to make private insurance illegal, I don't think anyone who's actually serious thinks that's ever going to happen. And I think what's really disingenuous uh, about Medicare for all, and to some extent, I think the people who are um, pushing it uh, are being incredibly dishonest with the American people. It's taking the good name of Medicare, which has a really good brand name that it's earned and deserved because it's a good program. And it's in many ways kind of misappropriating it to something that Medicare is not because Medicare is not a single payer program. You, know, you get basic Medicare is when you're over 65, but then you have choices. You can get a supplemental plan, or you can opt out and buy Medicare Advantage. Under Medicare for All, uh, you can't you can't do either of those things. And uh, so I just think it's it's a really poorly it's it's bad healthcare policy. It's terrible politics, and it's never going to happen. But we should have universal healthcare. We just need a, a smarter plan than that. Thank you again, John. I want to applaud your courage, your vision, and your willingness to, in an honest and open way, tackle healthcare, the most difficult challenge our nation faces today. I can't promise you that the listeners, the voters of this nation, will choose your plan over the others but I do believe they will give it deep and serious consideration and look to you to be a voice to help this nation solve the challenges of medicine today and once again, make us the best at healthcare in this world. Before we go, let's take a few minutes to hear what our listeners had to say about the role of government in healthcare. The following comments came to us courtesy of the new Fixing Healthcare Survey which is available on my website, robertperlmd.com. Polling is still going on, so please don't forget to send us your thoughts. Many of our listeners wrote us about how the government should pay for healthcare. Several of them sided with John Delaney, like Christopher Phillips, who says, quote, no socialized healthcare. He thinks the government should allow people to choose the best healthcare coverage they can afford. He also says each state should allow for a safety net to protect our nation's unemployed, homeless, or those who have simply lost their coverage. Daniel F. McCarter, MD, says that the government needs to make sure that doctors are paid based on their outcomes rather than simply paying doctors to do more. Daniel believes one way to do this is to increase reimbursement for high quality primary care. Robbie, our guest today has been a vocal critic of single payer coverage. Uh, what do you think is the right way to finance American healthcare? Jeremy, this is one of the most complex issues 
our nation faces. One way to view it is that the costs of healthcare are borne by people, by the American populace, regardless of who writes the check. They pay either through premiums, if they're individually insured, through lower wages, if it's employer-based, and through higher taxes, if the government provides the coverage. What's often missed, particularly in the current political debate, is that regardless of who pays, if the cost of healthcare is rising faster than overall inflation and GDP, healthcare coverage will become unaffordable. And when that happens, whoever the payer is will try to transfer the costs to someone else. And when that's no longer possible, rationing in some form is inevitable. What's missing in the conversation is a focus on the delivery system that is overpriced and underperforming. Any industry that is too expensive, particularly for the quality provided, ends up being disrupted. Healthcare will be no different. Unfortunately, given the political clout of the major healthcare players, tackling this issue has become medicine's third rail, has become a political issue that everyone talks about, but actually rarely engages in the type of deep and honest conversation that will be necessary going forward. Once again, thanks to Christopher Phillips, Daniel McCarter, and everyone who has participated in the new Fixing Healthcare survey so far on robertperlmd.com. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.